You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 188. We're going 88 miles per hour. Um, <laughs> going back, back in time. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we're, but we're going to, if we're going to 188, though, does that mean we come, we go forward? Then 88s to go backwards and 188s to go forward? That's the old 188 paradox. Yeah. Okay. Uh, paradox? Really? Okay. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you can see, we are definitely starting the show on the rails. Like we are, we are definitely you know following the the right path here. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to us, we would greatly appreciate it if you did. You can find some helpful links uh, at the top of the page. No, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know the routine by now. There's 188 episodes. You don't know what I'm going to say by now at the start of this thing. Right, yeah. So you can visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. It's almost like we have that written down somewhere. Somewhere. Uh, and also follow us on Twitter uh, at codingblocks. And if you tweet out, like, hey, love the Coding Box show, y'all are awesome, then I will respond with a gif of somebody dancing. What if they <laughs> respond? that out there. What if they respond back in the negative, though? Then oh, what? then somebody crying. Plus, oh. he meant, he meant yeah. GIF anyway. So. I'm good at so – I'm a child of social media, the revolution. You know? well, <laughs> okay. I, know how to, I know how to work this stuff. I, I, was gonna, I thought you were going to say you were a child of Giphy because I was like, my, my Giphy <laughs> game is this tight. It's, it's yeah, really it good. So, yeah. I also have a website. We can find a lot of dillies at the top of the page. With that, I'm Joe Zek. I'm Michael Outlaw, who might be on time or late to that announcement. <laughs> and I'm Alan Underwood, and can you truly call it Giphy if you just called it a GIF? I mean that the company is is Giphy. I can't I can't help. Shots it. fired! Wow. <laughs> All right. So with that, we are on part due of evolution of automation at Google. And this, this particular show was going to be a little bit more difficult because this is all like stories from inside Google about how things played out and how automation helped and how it hurt and everything. So, so this was some stories there. They they are excellent stories, but it was a little bit harder to put notes together. So hopefully this will be pretty good and you guys will all get something out of it. Guys and gals, everybody. Indeed. Uh, so first uh, section is on automating yourself out of a job, which, uh, you know, might scare some people, but not programmers. We're into that sort of thing. Uh, they had a, an interesting story about uh, automating MySQL, which is a database that they use for the Google Ads. Uh, at some point, I'm sure they have multiple databases in there for that. Were, were you not already like just a little bit of mind blown when they read that? And you're like, oh, man, something the size of Google relied yeah. on MySQL? Like, they too use this stuff? I, I, mean, I, this I seriously. Ago, so. Yeah, I seriously had the same reaction when I first saw it. Like, their ads was running on MySQL. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I, I'm totally naive here, but is there some sort of advantage to using MySQL over Postgres at this time? Just the time frame, because this was like early mid uh, 2000s. Yeah, but you're talking about today. Um, yeah. probably still. I think it's still one of the most used open source databases out there. Like probably even way more than Postgres would be my guess. Yep. And some of the tooling around MySQL is amazing. Like MySQL Workbench and some of the stuff that you get for free destroys some of the open source stuff for Postgres. So maybe that's good enough reason. Plus, you know, everything that's on WordPress basically uses it. So that's 30% of the internet. So 
Well, well, a lot of things that like I, I did like about MySQL now, are, like just kind of had to deal with like their storage engine stuff and transactions and like all that stuff is fixed now. I'm just I just don't know much about it anymore. I was going to say there's no way that MySQL is still more heavily used than something like a Postgres, but I was wrong. Like yeah. way WordPress. wrong, right? Yeah, according to DB Engines, uh, which we've mentioned before, db-engines.com, their ranking of it, MySQL is the number two database. Postgres is number four, with Oracle and then SQL Server filling in the blanks in between you know, for one and three. So, yeah, and it's a pretty big drop. It's like half, right, on the score down to Postgres. I mean, Postgres is awesome though. It's just yeah. MySQL is pretty ubiquitous. That's crazy. I, I wouldn't have guessed. I had just assumed Postgres was number one. Now. I would. I would have thought Postgres would have had overtaken it too. Yeah. And uh, so this tale starts out with uh, basically failovers. So if you kind of think about like early days of Google, they had far less computers and uh, failovers were uh, manual processes. And this is going to happen sometimes if you just need to kind of move one server to another, like you need to do a kernel upgrade or something. Uh, also, it could happen if something goes wrong and, you know, server gets in bad shape. There's a couple different reasons why you want, might want to fail over. Um, and this would take, uh, I don't think, I don't think we wrote it down, but I think they said it was like, 30 minutes it, it 30 could take, 90 minutes it could take some it. time yeah that was that was for the manual intervention right like if somebody had to go in and do it they said for that the, the actual for the master the, node right right yeah, yeah. not for right. the replicas right and so yeah. the one of the first things that they automated was this replica replacement thing right um and that was their their start into this world um but then they talked about they were going to migrate over to their Borg. Do you call it an engine? I don't really know. It's like their cluster <laughs> scheduling thing. But but Borg, they were migrating to Borg, right? And, and Borg, like it was kind of the predecessor predecessor to uh, Kubernetes, which um, I, I think Borg and Kubernetes are still kind of different things. But Kubernetes kind of like that's what it kind of came out of, or at least that was my reading of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we actually have a link to what Borg is in, in the show notes here. So if you were interested in, in what exactly that was at the time and still, I imagine still exists, right? They probably still use it because I doubt they pushed everything over to Kubernetes. But isn't the Borg supposed to be a bad thing? Like, didn't they like, can we, can we address Like that would be saying that you like created the death star for your company and now it's a good thing. And like, everybody's happy that you have the death star and you're like, but wait a minute, it didn't work out so well for on but all right yeah, okay. it's a good thing if you're the borg right, right yes yeah. yeah exactly yeah it's good to be the borg <laughs> <laughs> okay uh yeah so uh they uh wanted to be able to get this faster obviously and as google scaling up you can't have people spending 30 to 90 minutes or whatever it was uh failing these machines over so they were trying to figure out how to get it faster um <clears throat> and i am struggling with how to even <laughs> relate this story this so this I just to say sorry so this, the back whole backup of this chapter was basically kind of stories that emphasize the first part of the chapter about kind of evolution of automation and how things kind of grow from manual processes into autonomous systems um and so I, I do feel like there's really good nuggets here that really kind of make some of the weirder points from last episode make more sense but it's just kind of hard to figure out how to talk about it in a way that's sensical so this one for me, this this first one with the Borg and the migration and all that, the automation, kind of what they were getting at is it wasn't like painless. They they first started doing it, 
and and they saw benefits, right? Like they started automating out the the human interaction, the person interaction. They were getting rid of that stuff and things were great. But then when they tried to take it to the next level, the problem with MySQL is they said you can't do the same thing with the master nodes with with the master MySQL nodes that you can do with the replicas and so they ran into problems with Borg there, right? So during their automation, they ran into a bunch of brick walls that they had to overcome. And so while they were trying to automate stuff, it all sounded great, but they actually caused themselves a lot of pain in the process, right? It, but ultimately, after they got over those things, they saw the fruits of all the efforts come to life. And, and then in the end, basically, now they've got a system that is sort of hands-free, right? Like it, it, it kind of takes care of itself now. Yeah, and well, and they commented too that like they saw a large reduction in like mon- mundane tasks because because they had f- you know figured out how to to solve the the difficult problem was you know how to handle failovers for the master node master database nodes. Once they figured that out, I think it was like ninety five percent of their uh, you know mundane tasks were were gone, like their toil, right? Yeah. The, the the crap that that they just had to do, and then they also said after they finally got to the end of the tunnel with all their efforts to make this happen, not only did their mundane tasks reduce by 95%, their total operational costs for managing those MySQL clusters also dropped by 95%. But I want to address like another like elephant in the room, though kind of thing, because we hear this, this, like this portion of the chapter was titled like automating yourself out of a job. Right. And there's, and that kind of has like a negative connotation to it. Right. But number one is like, well, is it negative? Cause like, did you really want to like spend the rest of your career like failing over MySQL no uh, master database nodes? No, like that you, you want to get out of that job. N- number one. But number two is like, I kind of, we shouldn't think of these things in like such negative context. Like I'm automating myself out of a job because that's never going to be the case. And I think we described this before with like this type of automation. You're always going to be like, well, what's the next thing that I can automate? You're going to just iterate onto the next thing. And even in some of their story here, like, you know, that's what ended up happening. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, we kind of just blasted through that whole section, but a couple of points worth talking about is there were, one of the main things that they ran into when they when they automated all of this, the the problems that happened is now their applications that depended on MySQL, those all had to be updated, right? Because typically in in anybody that's been doing oh. this stuff for a long time, if you're in your standard three tier architecture, right, where you've got a front end, a middle tier, and your back end database, we'll call it you almost always expect that backend database to be your like the thing that's strong in your system, right? Like that thing's yeah, always going to be They called there. it out is like developers always assume it's the, the strongest part of the stack. Most right. Reliable. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so the problem is when they started building all this automated failover, these things will migrate nodes and the masters would change over and the replicas would change over. The problem is the code wasn't built to be fault tolerant, right? And so they had to go in. So they automated the MySQL stuff to do the failovers, but then they had to go in and touch all the code as well. And they had to do that because they needed to make sure that this thing would, would be able to come back up in a state to where it could operate again. So, so this whole notion of automating yourself out of a job, you've, you've never finished, right? Like there's always more stuff that you've got to do. 
And ultimately what you're trying to do is make your life better as a developer, as a person who has to support these systems. So, you know, like, like outlaw said, and we've said in the past, right? Like, even if you automate a job, I know there's, there's definitely been arguments over like people in fast food industries, right? Like they've already started putting kiosks in the stores, right? Like if you go into a Taco Bell or something, you might be ordering at a kiosk. Well, I can guarantee you. Okay. So now there's not people standing in front of a register that are going to be taking your order necessarily in every place. But now you have created jobs for people that are going to be maintaining these systems and, and taking care of these things when they go wrong. Right. So you're, you're always going to have new things to do. Well, um, there were two thoughts I had on that. One was the software that they, that they mentioned, they specifically called out, they had to make changes to JDBC. Right. In order to support this idea that the master nodes might not be as like, you know, reliable or as you previously once thought of them because of this, because the Borg, like we said, was an early predecessor to, you know, what maybe later spun out Kubernetes, but it was basically doing container management, right? So a big part of the reason why they were able to reduce their operational costs is because they were now able to keep all of the MySQL infrastructure being maintained by the Borg. Then they were able to better stack, uh, you know, MySQL instances onto, uh, fewer, you know, fewer machines, and I think this was the one where they were the chapter portion of the chapter where they were talking about like suddenly all their SREs, they had a huge abundance of time because their mundane, their toil was reduced by 95%. But they also had a huge abundance of hardware because I think they said that they reduced the hardware by like, you know, 60% or something. It was insane. massive. Right. All because of, you know, them, them being able to like run MySQL now as containers that were managed by the Borg. But so that was, that was thought one. But then, uh, you know, you were talking about like this, this building upon thing, like, you know, I made the joke about the Death Star a moment ago, but you know, if you think about like how you would build the Death Star, right? Like at some point it just started out as the International Space Station, right? <laughs> something, something silly, you know, some like weird stick looking thing and floating in the space, right? You know, and then they just kept building upon it. So it was like, Hey, we have the International Space Station. Woohoo. We're done. No, you're not. You got to keep building, man. Right. Like, so it's, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're never automating yourself out of a job no yeah i wanted to mention too like if you think about um when we got rid of the toil to uh required in failovers that time went into improving software that like jdbc drivers that benefited like the whole organization if they if they pushed that stuff into the um the main jdbc you know repositories and they made it better for the world which is pretty cool so like would you rather be doing like repetitive boring work uh or making the world a better place for everybody just it's a tremendous trade-off in value there well, now yeah, that you totally. put it like that, I guess I'll just do the toil. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> well, uh, also, oh, I don't think we mentioned it, but um, they eventually got this process down to 30 seconds uh, uh, or less downtime, uh, which I thought was really cool. And they mentioned that it was actually a requirement. So I was kind of curious. They didn't say whether that was a business requirement. No, they did. Uh, I remember. Oh, now. it was a business. Okay. Yeah. Or if it was a board Is, requirement. That, okay. that was part of the problem with the 90-minute uh, time for the previous versions of the failover uh, for the master node was that it, it took too long. And so once they put it onto the Borg, then because the Borg would like reschedule these containers, you know, a couple times a week, then they were blowing out their, uh, their error budget. Okay, cool. So they had to reduce that time in order to fit within it. And so for anybody that wants some behind the scenes on this show, like typically we, we mostly go in order. <laughs> we totally did that entire section out of order. So if you're looking at the show notes, trying to, trying to line it up with what we said, it's not. And again, it's, it's partly because of how these stories are done, right? Like it's, it's, 
we don't want to read the stories out to you, right? Like this isn't a bedtime type thing. So, um, you know, we're talking about it in the way that seems to make the most sense. It's yeah, neither a forward a nor a reverse index. Right. Yes. Uh, if you leave a comment, let us know uh, why you like my sequel over Postgres or what you think about any of these things. We'll send you a copy of the book and uh, I mean, you have a chance to win a copy of the book and uh, you can read some of these stories yourself. And they're also, don't forget, the book is also free online. So you can be reading all this right now. That's true. Yep. Uh, so second story, uh, uh, automating cluster delivery. So they had a story about a particular setup of uh, big table, <laughs> big table, uh, where um, there was some sort of efficiency uh, kind of change put in place where they didn't use the first disk of a 12 disk cluster. And then uh, some late automation came around at a later date and saw that if the first disk wasn't being used, it assumed that none of the disks were being used and it would wipe it. And so this had uh, – I think these were cache servers, so it wasn't like catastrophic. But it uh, <laughs> ended up causing this kind of cascading delete of data, which was straight on other systems and took down, I think, uh, one of the data centers uh, briefly. So, well, they mentioned um, that they had like real-time you know, uh, replicas of it, so it wasn't like yeah. a huge problem. But it caused it, some panic. It does make you wonder, like, was that the guy's first day on the job that was like, well, I guess I can assume that if uh, – <laughs> If the first disk isn't being used, that none of them are being used. So just RM minus RF star. And yes. then he commits the code. And like <laughs> a week later, but, he's like, hey, uh, tapped on the shoulder. Did you know that you, you know just what? deleted the entire data center? This is this is dangerous because this is, I mean, this has happened to all of us, right? So basically you had people that were, so this automating cluster delivery, this was actually talking about the infrastructure for clusters, right? This had nothing to do with Bigtable itself. And then you had the big table group that did an optimization because apparently not using the first disk in the 12 disk cluster made it way faster for some, some odd reason, right? Who knows what it is, but so you basically had two teams doing things that made sense for themselves. And, and so this automating of the cluster delivery, they're like, Oh, well they're not using the first disk. It's gone. So, so it's, you had this sort of hidden optimization and the big table delivery that the teams automating the cluster delivery didn't know about. And so it, they, that's, they, they call out, like you have to be careful about these sort of hidden safety signals because like, how, how is my team supposed to know that your team just doesn't use the first disc because you know, it was, it was slower with the cash retrieval or whatever. Like it, it's just, it's a bizarre thing, but it's easy to see how that could blow up on you. Yeah. It, yep. it was for latency reasons that, it, they would have a 12 disc system and they would not use the first disc. So one right away, I was like, my mind was just kind of blown. Like, <laughs> wait, why did the first disc matter or have such a huge impact on it? That's right. just bizarre. Yeah. But also, yeah, to your point, like, Hey, I gave you 12 discs and you're only using 11 of them. Like, <laughs> you know, why would I even, how would I even know that? Why would I even think that, you you know, if I saw the first disc is completely unused, why wouldn't yeah. you think that the others aren't? And you imagine like a lot of times you don't write a script like this from like top to bottom, like every line doing something. You combine other tools that people have. So someone might have said like, hey, here's a, a tool called disk checker that checks if the disk array is uninitialized. And you use it and you don't realize that the way it checks that is by kind of this implicit safety signal of like figuring out whether or not the first disk is empty. And so you don't really think about how it works necessarily because you're a higher level of abstraction and it works great in tests. And then you roll it out and Oops, you didn't realize that one of these other tools you were using kind of took a shortcut on something. Right. I, I was questioning like how this worked because like 
in my you you just mentioned the twelve disc array, but I'm thinking like no, I don't know that it was because like if it was a twelve disc array, then all twelve discs would be used, right? Like you wouldn't have whoever the array, array controller is would be controlling the usage. So I'm in my mind, I was thinking like okay, it's a rack of like you know maybe like a storage uh, a controller that ha- that houses twelve discs, and they made an array that is the the last eleven. And they, so like, if you were to go look at like the storage rack, you see like the first drive light in every storage controller is like solid, never being used, but the others are like blinking from all the usage. Right. I don't know. It's also a weird assumption though, like to just make the like, Oh, this first one isn't being used. So I guess none of them are right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you could see how somebody was, would do it. Right. And that's, that's, you know, kind of what they were getting at is there are some things that are dangerous. And then they even say, um, their, their automation depending on a bunch of like, you know, custom shell scripts and those ended up being problems over time, which takes us into the next section, which was something that they'd created called prod test, which was their way of detecting inconsistencies with deployments. Now, um, uh, just quick clarification. I think the prod test, if I wasn't mistaken, the prod test was like almost a framework that individual teams would use for their services. And so they would say like, you know, prod test, you're setting up a new service called Big Tibble or Big Query, whatever, like fill out prod test. Okay. But this, okay, I did have like one thing that was like, I had to take my medication when I was reading this because like I kept twitching. <laughs> When I was reading this portion of it, and I don't know if it bothered you guys too, but they would refer to them as unit tests, but then they were like pushing files around or setting up DNS. And I'm like, no, it's an integration test. Why are you calling it that? Yeah, it's totally an integration test. All of it was an integration test, the entire string of them. Well, I guess at their point, like they've gotten to such a scale, you know, like, you know, I, we consider our computer like that thing on our desk, whereas they consider their computer is that like, oh, it's that large building over there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So maybe like, you know, integration test means something different. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And uh, I totally interrupted the flow. Sorry about that. So you were just describing what uh, prod test was, but um, it's basically the idea is that prod test is a suite of what they called unit tests that would be run on a service. It would do things like checking, uh, just like what Allah said, checking DNS to make sure it's okay. And if that test can, uh, works, then it would go on to the next test, next test and maybe it would check, I don't know, connectivity to some other service or something and keep on going. And if one of those tests fails, then it would bail uh, and then this was uh, something that each team would create. And so that you could run this test on the service and kind of get a health check and say, well, okay, this is where it stopped. So somebody needs to fix that. And then somebody could go in and jump in, but every team was required to kind of create this prod test file or, you know, suite of files that would go and kind of check out the health of something. This, so let's, this was the sentence that bothered me the most though. We extended the Python unit test framework to allow for unit testing of Real world services. So that was the yeah. part where I was like, well, wait a minute, you've broken out of that that thing. But yeah. It's no longer a unit we'll test. So so let's back up real quick though, because let's talk about why they even had this. So what they were saying is in their cluster deployments, they go to set up new clusters, right? And every time that they do it, they'd end up having to make some custom flag changes to to various different parts of the system. And when something would go wrong, they'd have no idea what it was because you know, they modified their their typical scripts or whatever, their flags. And so they got into a situation where it would take months to stand up a cluster, right? 
And and basically, they got a directive from management where they were like, "Hey, we want this done in a few weeks or a couple of weeks or whatever it was." And they were like, "Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. okay." So, so that made them back up because they had typically done everything in shell script form, which is great for a lot of things, but it didn't let them check the state or consistency of a bunch of other systems. And so this is kind of what drove them to this prod test thing was, was to be able to check what is the state of all these systems that are hooked up in this cluster so that we can know when we're ready to launch the thing. Yeah, this I is thought really it was up. like the, the, them spinning up, like how fast it went um, was a side effect of doing prod test because they, you're right. There was a section where they where they described like they were out of the blue told like, Hey, we're going to spin up these five new clusters and you have to get, spin them up in a single week, right? Whereas before that was something that took a long time, but that, that mandate came because they had prod test now yes. and they were because of prod test managers or project managers were finally able to like predict when they could go live. And that's when, that's what, that was the impetus that was like, okay, well, because we can predict this room, you got a week. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so the next story, actually, by the way, yeah, it, it bleeds into it. So, yeah, I think I sort of I said it in a way that implied that prod test came from them saying that they needed to get something up in two weeks. Whereas what Outlaw said is, you know, they were like, "Hey, well, we can get something stood up in a couple of weeks now because we have prod test." But that led into other problems. But again, the whole reason prod test even came about was they were having a hard time even getting the cluster stood up because when they would make these changes to custom flags and scripts and everything, they had no idea why things were failing all over the place because it wasn't consistent from one cluster to another. Yeah. Here, here were the steps that it took to, and by the way, this whole, this whole thing with the, like, the one week thing, I just wanted to go like that. That's part of the Jay-Z said that was part of a later chapter and he's not wrong. That, that chapter is called no good deed goes unpunished. But uh, the here were the steps for the getting the cluster ready. And I was like reading through this. I was like, oh, man, it actually kind of sounds fun. <laughs> Number one, fit out a data center building for power and cooling. <laughs> right away. Like that's like that's your like, oh. again, going back to our definition of a computer being that thing on your desk versus them. It's like, no, it's that building over there. <laughs> right. Install and configure core switches and connections to the backbone. Number two, number three, install a few initial racks of servers. And then number four through six is where it got complicated. Configure basic services such as DNS and installers, then configure a lock service storage and computing. That's number four. Number five, deploy the remaining racks of machines. And number six, assign user facing services resources so their teams can set up the services. Yeah, I like how step one is create a building with power and right? air conditioning, <laughs> and that's not the hard part. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. uh, and this whole story, by the way, I think is really about uh, evolution. So it started with them, you know, having a, a lot of manual work and a lot of kind of scripts, and everything was inconsistent. And then they moved to prod tests. And then when all the tests were green, that's when you know something's ready. And so management can see and, and say, "Hey, we're fifty percent." Uh, passing tests, which we know, you know, roughly takes about two weeks. So we're on schedule. We're running faster than the last one. You know, it, it introduced some uh, predictability. Uh, but the problem with uh, prod test was that, uh, you know, you're still relying on humans to go in and fix these things when things went wrong. So well, hold on. Before, the- before you jump up, because I know where you're going with this real quick. The important part about prod test that that they built in was this chainability. Right. So. 
So when they would go deploy a cluster, it would go check to see if the configurations were right. It would check to see if the system was up and running, if the service was up and running. And then after that one succeeded, then it would know the, the prod test framework would know that, okay, the next thing to check is this test, right? And it would keep going down these line of tests. And if one failed, then it would abort and be like, Hey, something died here. Well, right. So, I mean, let's build on that for a moment because like this, this was another part of the thing. Like typically when we talk about unit tests, unit tests, one of the core assumptions about, about unit testing is that you cannot make an assumption as to like the order of what your tests are going to run, run in. Yeah. You should just assume that they might run in a random order, that the order they ran in last time is not going to be the same time order they ran in next time. And if it, if they do happen to run in the same order, that's just a coincidence. And you should not try to make any kind of assumptions or infer any kind of state in a later unit test. Whereas what Alan's saying here is they specifically did add in that ordering that implicit uh or explicit ordering to the the way their tests were being ran yep and so the important thing to know i guess is if they had a hundred tests you could think of it as almost like this this top down thing like the top one was green all right then run the second one if it's green then run the third one if it's not then abort right like stop and throw up a thing and let everybody know that everything failed so oddly now, they didn't have a unit test for is the building built yet that <laughs> i noticed in their testing that they they did give examples that one wasn't there and and also in the show notes we do have a link to what one of these charts looks like again this this book is available online for free so we have a link to one of the diagrams that they have so that you can sort of see this flow and with that back to where you were headed Joe cuz you were about to take us to the next step Yep so they had these chains unit tests and one fails and then they would just stop the whole thing and that's where the the percentages kind of were meaningful because it was like almost like you know, steps along a flow chart and then someone would go in, investigate, do whatever they need to do, and then move on to the next thing. Well, at some point, someone said, you know what? Some of these things, if we see this needs to be done, we can automate it. So maybe we'll have the shell script for setting up the IP tables or something. And if that test fails, it'll run and we'll make it item potent if we can, as best we can. And so that, you know, if it ends up getting run more than once or, you know, ends up like something bails in the middle, uh, it can kind of pick up and just kind of fix itself. Uh, which is pretty nice. Uh, but the problem with that is that some of these things are hard to make fully item potent. So uh, sometimes things would be kind of flaky or maybe the test would be a little bit flaky. Like maybe it wasn't a problem with IP tables. Maybe DNS was down because somebody tripped over the uh, Ethernet cable or something, you know. So um, sometimes these things would just kind of end up in weird spots. And so even though this was a, a huge good thing, uh, it wasn't very easy to, and it wasn't – it still required a lot of human intervention to get these things going to fully green. But this one also, like, I think that, um, you know, this is where, like, being an outsider looking in, like, reading this book, maybe, like, is working against me. Because, like, I was trying to understand this portion, like, why would you even do it that way? Because I was, like, thinking that, okay, one of the examples they gave was uh, test DNS monitoring config exists. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, you already had some code that pushed out the monitoring config. Now you're going to test if the config exists. It doesn't exist. So now you're going to call a method called fix monitor, monitoring create config. I'm like, well, but that's the thing you already did that you're trying to test that failed. And now you're going to do it again as part of the test. And yep. and so that flakiness that you referred to, maybe that's related to it or something like having like it almost sounded like you might have duplicate code or code paths to, to do the same thing, right? The, the initial time and then like once as part of a, a test fix. 
But you know, they referred to like that the flakiness that you refer to was uh, sometimes like uh, because you would have these flaky tests that would fail, but then you could rerun it and oh, now it works, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like ruin the reliability of the test, to, you know, to know like well, or maybe not ruin the reliability of it, but but, but more like kind of encourages a behavior of oh, it failed, just run it again, it'll probably succeed. Well, if, if you remember right. It. They had also talked about here, I think in this particular section, that the the retry times or whatever were set on intervals that were sort of long. I want to say it was like 15 minutes or something like that, right? And so that they said what would happen is things would get out of a good state in that time when it was trying to run the next retry. And so because because it wasn't like, hey, this thing failed, immediately try and fix it. It was, hey, it failed. It's going to check in 15 minutes again to see if everything was good, and it's going to go through and do all these tests, and then it's going to fail again. If you had 100 things, and and it's having to go through and wait 15 minutes before it can fix the next one, the next one, it would get into this like really long loop. But then they said during that time, somehow the state could get in bad. Right. And we don't know what the internals of whatever that might have meant. Right. Like what happened. But suffice it to say that if the fix might have happened immediately, then it could have probably curtailed some of that, that those problems that were happening. But, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. Yeah. I'm just more or less more to the point getting saying, though, that because you could have these tests that would fail the first time and then later succeed because some automated fix ran like it fixed itself. So that's good. But you as a person now don't trust your, the failures. And so that like makes you, I don't know. Like you, you, you know, you know what I'm trying to say though? Cause because like you're, you're going to yeah, just in your trust. mind think that like, okay, well it'll probably, it'll probably, you're not going to drop everything to like, Oh, it, the, the test failed. Oh, let me figure out what's going on. Instead. You're going to like, harbor you're you're gonna uh, reinforce this behavior among your team to where you're like oh just wait and see if it fails twice it fails twice in a row which like to your point could be like 30 minutes you know or 15 minutes later so uh yeah hey and and for anybody new to the show or people that aren't like super familiar with computer sciencey terms when when you say item potent that basically means you can just do the same thing over and over and over and expect the same exact result, right? Like it's it's like adding two plus two. So, um, it's such a weird word. Well, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, like obviously, like a bank transaction is not idempotent. So, if you run uh, some code that says like minus fifteen dollars and you run it again, you're down thirty dollars and down forty five, and then who knows what's next? Right. That's not uh, idempotent. So, like what they were talking about in their scripts was, you know. Let's say set DNS, right? Like set DNS settings. You know, the whole thought is if they run that and, you know, it was supposed to put in a certain set of values for DNS, the next time it runs, it shouldn't add more values. It should make sure that the ending state of those DNS settings is exactly what that script wanted, right? So that's when they say item potent, that's what they mean is being able to run these things with the expected state being done at the end of it. Yeah. I mean, if it, Going back to your point, like if you're new to it, like a calculator, it should be item potent, right? If you say two plus two, you should always get five, no matter what, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> always. You should always get the same answer every time you do it. Yep. Even if it's wrong. Wait, what? <laughs> I got right. that answer from Joe, so I'm pretty sure Math and Chicken would not let me down. That is correct. 
All right. So the next thing that they got into was specializing and it, what they basically, what they go into here is there's like three things or three ways that automation can vary. There's competence, latency, and relevance. And competence is just, can it do it? Um, latency, how long it takes. And then the relevance, I actually put the, the definition on this one because I was like, huh? So they said the proportion of real world processes covered by automation. So basically they're going after the stuff that matters, I think is what they're basically trying to say here. Um, yeah, and yeah. go ahead. Uh, I was just going to go on to the next part. Um, yeah, go ahead. Talking about basically uh, the ability that they would use turn up teams and they use this word uh, turn up uh, for it almost sounds like not a, like the not like the vegetable, not, not vegetable, not a turnip. <laughs> yeah, not a turn up, turn up, a turn up team that would just focus on automation tasks. So teams of people in the same room that we all get together and get things done quicker. So you imagine like these are a bunch of specialists who come in and they they're used to setting up clusters and so they can kind of swoop in, get things set up, and then move on to the next thing, um, which sounds you know pretty nice. But uh, it's again, it's kind of like a just a stepping stone in terms of evolution. They didn't stick with it for too long because there could be like they would say actually over a thousand changes a day. To running systems which is a ton of stuff and you've got imagine all these people like kind of shouting across the room like hey did you set this up all right i'm running this now and you know things happening at the same time these computers it gets confusing like sometimes you know imagine like someone's restarting in the middle of your process running or you know doing whatever uh needs to happen just kind of funky stuff can imagine um happening here was this the same section where they were talking about like coincidentally they noticed a pattern of where like they were hiring a new engineer every time there was a new cluster Nope. That was on the previous when oh, okay. they were talking about doing the the cluster uh, onlining the clusters, but yeah, yeah, they where it was purely they they noticed it coincidentally, and then you know yeah, all right, whatever, I'll move on. Oh yeah, it was, was there. Trust me, read it. It was. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, when any any time they had uh, automation code that wasn't staying in sync with the code it was covering. That's when uh, they they actually said like, that's when automation code dies, and we've talked about that before. When you've got automation code, it's kind of like this glue stuff that runs uh, around these other systems, and sometimes people like add flags or change how things work a little bit. If the automating the system that's orchestrating and automating uh, those things isn't aware of those changes, then it gets out of sync and it starts acting poorly, and people don't use it anymore because. Yeah, it just stinks. So you've got to kind of keep on top of this stuff. Okay, so this is where this can get this can get tricky. Now, hold on. Because this is where the debate of is DevOps a title or a culture can become a debate, right? Because basically what they're saying here is that you have to have people that are passionate about these these certain areas, right? Like in this case, automation. And so if you like imagine, for example, you create a new build system and then no one else bothers to care about it and you walk away from it to go work on something else now. And now other people like maybe you've like made it like super fast, right? Like the build times are like, I don't know, 30 seconds, but you, you now go away to it from it and nobody else is maintaining it. So they're adding in, you know, a lot of cruft or whatever and, and, and bloat. And now it's 10 minutes, right? Because nobody else was bothering to care, you know, to maintain it, right? That's the type of example that they're talking about here is that you have to have people who, whatever this automation might be, uh, you know, that, that, that are passionate about maintaining it and, and caring for it and the feeding of it that, you know, will keep, uh, you know, the performance updated or like as new changes are made. Otherwise, what will happen is it becomes stale and maybe even stops working. 
because so, as things change over time. That could be one, or it could be. So I would imagine like these specialized teams that they got together were people that were like cluster delivery people, right? Like, hey, we're going to set up a new cluster. Well, some of the things that they used in the past have changed, right? Like, so not necessarily like the automation system itself, but the software they're trying to deliver, right? Like maybe the DNS system changed, or maybe, you know, some other thing that they're putting on these changed, and they're just not aware of those changes. So the things that they'd automated in the past no longer work the same way at all. So it could be a combination of the two, right? It could be the actual automation. It could be the underlying systems that changed that the automation was written around. And now, and now they're kind of in a really bad situation, right? Because okay, so they're not aware it. of the changes. Yeah. yeah. You weren't, you weren't maintaining that automation code as, as new things would, as software would change around it. And so therefore like, you know, uh, you're using old flags, you know, yes. for like, you know, something like Git or something like that. Or, and, and now those options aren't available. And so your automation starts to fall apart. Yep. Yeah. And they, they mentioned that created uh, some bad side effects here. And this is kind of the argument that people make, uh, or one of the arguments people make when talking about um, DevOps not being a role. Uh, it, it, like what we're talking about here is basically kind of a traditional ops type scenario. Where we've got one team that's in charge of running this stuff and another team who's in charge of developing it. And then you've got these uh, incentives where the, the ops team just wants to get this thing green. They want to get it running and any problems that come up, they're like, well, that's the product team where someone else is going to have to fix that. And the product team is delivering, uh, is developing this stuff and they don't really have an incentive to make it easier to stand up. Um, so they just kind of want to add features, features, features. They don't want to make it easier to run or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And who is more uh, qualified to kind of know what's wrong and set stuff up than the product team who's actually developing it? So they had a bad split here and just wasn't really working out. So that's why I say it was a stepping stone part of the evolution. But uh, ultimately, it wasn't a good thing. And they ended up getting away from it because turnips ended up being inaccurate and taking forever. And uh, or what are those things? Inaccurate, high latency, and incompetence. So basically, the the uh, three kind of anti-patterns when it comes to uh, automation. This section, though, was kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys got this takeaway from it. So keep in mind the time frame of, of when... Um, you know, the SRE, SRE movement within Google, I think the books called it out was like in the mid two thousands. Right. And, and they were writing about this like after the fact, right? So this is mid two thousands. This was the section where they, they were talking about how, uh, specific to like their use of SSH because they were using uh, SSH to automate a lot of things, but that would require root access on, on, these machines in order to install and make configuration changes, which they admitted was like, you know, clumsy from a security point of view, but they referred to it as, however, this is the quote, however, an unrelated security mandate allowed us out of this trap. Cause that those, uh, high latency, inaccurate and incompetence, uh, turn up teams that you were just referring to, uh, Joe was, was the quote trap. So an unrelated security mandate allowed us out of this trap. And I immediately was like, Snowden. This was, this had to be related to that, right? Like when, when all the, um, leakage of the documents. Yeah. That, that, that's what I was thinking of from a time frame point of view. Did the, did you guys make that connection? Cause that was around the time where like everything started to get everything across the internet started, it seemed to get like more secure. Like we start caring about like, you know, is it HTTP versus HTTPS and, Everything was like putting, you know, tight controls around security. I don't know. It's just, I just thought it was kind of interesting. Like 
you know, maybe that wasn't related. Maybe I could be wrong. And it was like later the, you know, heart bleed or something like that, that made them uh, decide to, to change it. But, um, you know, just trying to relate the real world kind of timeframes of like what was happening. You know, the point is like, there were other things happening in the world and they had this process that they were using and they admitted that it had high latency and it was inaccurate and had some incompetencies about it. But they were they were using it, and they might not have ever changed had these other like outside factors ever influenced their thought on it. You know, maybe they wouldn't be where they are today because of it. You know, Snowden was twenty thirteen though. I had to look it up. I couldn't remember. Really, it was twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. So they mentioned it was in response to advanced persistent threats. So who knows? Maybe they got maybe this involved uh, governments, or maybe there was some sort of uh, hacking incident that we didn't know about. Uh, but either way, basically, they said, you know, they, they had a security mandate that said, hey, no more shelling into individual computers. And so what they ended up doing about it was pretty cool and specific. But basically, to, to kind of bullet down, they ended up creating this kind of, um, I forget what they call it, like admin manager, admin service. We, we that get would, into it here in a minute. Okay. So, but yeah, it was basically just a, a service that would uh, that would run somewhere, and it was in charge of making the uh, the changes. And you would tell it what to do, but there was a full audit trail and uh, all sorts of good stuff. And then that way, nobody had to have root on these machines. Like, they, in fact, they weren't allowed to have root, uh, so it was just better all around. But what it did is it made like all those shell scripts and stuff that they had written uh, kind of not necessarily moot, you know, but. Um, it was a good time to reform. They had to change, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, when when did you say the Snowden? Uh, 2013. I think it said June 2013. Okay, so maybe it was Heartbleed then, because I, I thought Heartbleed came after, and, and according to Wikipedia, Heartbleed was February of 12. So maybe that's what the ad- advanced security, persistent security threats that made them mm. move it. But I was thinking yeah, like, you what know, yeah. De- definitely like the Snowden stuff would have been more external and not internal, but it still made me think that like, you know, as an industry, people started becoming more like security minded first, you know? Yep. So. All right. Well, um, Joe, I don't think you can do this anymore. I give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you failed us. So uh, if you haven't already left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a review. No one stars, though, um, like Joe asked for last time. Uh, please don't do that. Um, but I mean, if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. I can't, I can't tell you how to feel. Um, so you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And, uh, yeah, it really does, uh, put a smile on our face when we read that. If you want to, if you're like, man, I'd really like to buy these guys a beer, you know, as a way to thank them for, uh, everything. Hey, just leave us a review. It's, uh, it's cheap for you. puts a smile on our face and, you know, works for everybody. Right. Cause depending on like what city you live in, like a beer could be expensive. It can be expensive, and it could be Sweetwater 420, which just kind of isn't good. So, I mean, you know. Why? Why? Why did you go there? Like, Why do IPs was, exist? That's I, right. Question. I was well, being man. so nice. There was nothing mean about anything I said, and then all of a sudden, you had to take it to this dark place. I'll take a Bud Light or a Coors Light over a Sweetwater 420. Ugh, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I, I ate a clock yesterday. I mean, if we're talking about like you know things that we eat and drink. Eight o'clock. Yeah, I ate o'clock. It was so time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a uh, few episodes back, you know, we're talking about this SRE book, and there's a lot of bleed over with DevOps and whatnot. And so uh, we asked, "How do we feel about DevOps?" So your choices were: love it, it's the greatest, or it's okay when things work, or or no, I'm sorry, it's great when things work. 
it's okay, but overrated is the third choice. Or I wish we had a good DevOps pipeline. Or lastly, it's a dream. Nobody really does that. This whole book is a lie. All right. Um, that part wasn't in there, but it should have been. It was, you know, uh, what is this? 188. So according to Tateco's trademark rules of engagement, Jay-Z, you are first. Okay. Well, I think that people wish they had a good DevOps pipeline. pipeline and I'm going to say um, 30 to 33% said that. Wait, what was a you, wait, what <laughs> you're giving me a range. Yep. That's not how this game works, sir. It's to be lazily evaluated uh, upon reveal of the answer. <laughs> He's got a lazy in it for <laughs> apparently yeah, lazy functional. of tea. There's no side effects, so you can just run this later. Oh, that's amazing. It's an item potent type of thing here. Pure Let's function. See. Yes. Oh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to go. It's great when things work, and I'll go thirty percent. Ooh, single number. I'm yeah, bold. right. Yes, yes. <laughs> A daring move. <laughs> and you both are like in the same range, right? <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. uh Joe says, I wish we had a good DevOps pipeline, 30 to 33%. And Alan says, it's great when things work, 30%. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. Oh, not only do we have a winner of who picked the right uh, option, but they also did not go over. Okay. That's like a double whammy win. <laughs> All right. But I thought whammies were supposed to be like a bad thing. Remember that old game? Whammy, yeah, whammy, no, whammies. No, whammies. no whammies. Pressure yeah. luck. Yeah. But this one, we're going to flip the script. Whammies are a good thing here. So you got a double whammy. Alan is the winner. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. It was 50%. It's great when things work. That's pretty right. high. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the unfortunate thing about that then, though, is that the things are not as smooth as what they should be. Right. Either that or, you know, you you could also be like, you know, that's one half full version of it. You could also just say like, well, maybe 50% don't have it. (laughs) There's that. Although there were some that were like in the love it category, but, you know, in okay. So definitely there were others that had it. Cool. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, did we want to mention? So we recently found that you can see all the polls that we've ever done and you can still vote on them (laughs) and see the results. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I don't if know if you've got a day or two available. <laughs> yeah. I didn't create a short link for that though. Um, nope, that was from can. the plugin. We could create a short link for it if you wanted to. Yeah. What's a good name for the short link? I'll do it right now. What was the, is, is polls? Is that an option? No, uh, it can't. looks like we, that already exists actually. Can we yeah. repurpose that one? Yeah. I don't think, can you? Yeah. Polls is the one that I set up. So we'll, okay. we'll, I'll change that one and make it, uh, yeah. So if you go to slash polls. Yeah, let's just do that on the fly. Uh, you know, code review and edit and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, how about for this episode survey? We ask for your day job: Are you primarily working? Dot dot dot. It. I had a typo here, Michael. Your grammar. I said in cloud, but I meant in the cloud. <laughs> That's where my head's at. And you can tell that that's where my head was at when I wrote that answer, when I just said in cloud or on-prem, we like to think we control our servers or a hybrid. 
we can't make up our minds. Or local desktop application, keeping it old school. Or it's all about mobile. I would have totally forgotten about mobile, which is crazy because it's probably one of the biggest ones out there now. You know why? Like, okay, so total tangent, tangent alert. Boop, 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 boop. All right, so uh, one thing that's been on my mind lately, like, I want just stupid, kind of dumb, brainless games to play on the phone, right? But what totally bothers me, like, I can't stand some of the games with like the just inundation of uh ads right oh, they, i can't play them i uh, know it's like so, some games are just awful like every s- single like time you restart a level like because some games are aren't like uh some some games are just like like take a for example let's let's take something as silly as like a minesweeper or solitaire where it's like you know you're going to redo it over and over and over right and after each time that you play the game you're going to uh you know have to like watch some ad or something you know and and some games that can be really annoying because based on the type of game that it is, you know, there might be like a high restart frequency. And so now, yeah, I mean, you know, the developer, they're making, a, you know, buckets of money from it probably, but which is why they do it. But I've kind of had this urge to just create like ad free games, like open source ad free games and open source so that you can like inspect the code and see like, hey, there's nothing tracking in here. Because that's the other thing that bothers me is like. Nowadays, it's like, I don't know what you can and can't trust. Like, how do I know that that game isn't like, you know, accessing some library that it shouldn't be and tracking something that it shouldn't be or whatever. And did you guys see like, uh, (laughs) we've, we've, I guess maybe picked on it too much, but, uh, like, you know, related to TikTok. And this week, uh, there was an article, um, that I read on Engadget where I'll put it in the show notes, but um, where the, I think it was the FCC was, or at least a member of the SEC, I think it was more accurately a way to describe that, was strongly urging Apple and Google to take TikTok off of their app stores because of um, various, you know, concern, security concerns that they had for the concerns of, you know, the American citizens. So yeah, that's why I've like, that's why mobile was on my, has been on my mind. You know, it's just like not necessarily related to TikTok, but just like the, the desire to like create just some kind of stupid game that I don't care about that, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, those games, I would gladly pay $2 just to get rid of the ads. But then you don't know that they're not tracking you. That's yeah, you don't know that. That's true too. But I, I cannot stay in the games that, that do exactly what you're saying, where it's you know constantly. I uninstall them almost immediately if it turns out to be one of those. Yeah, I, the problem is like, how do you know if it's tracking you? And like, even if it is, you know, even if you pay it, you can't. So that's why I was thinking like, I kind of want to. There's a there's a a very small part of me that that's like, oh, I kind of want to just like create my own because I, I don't know about you. Like I don't play anything on the phone that I'm going to play is just because like I have 30 seconds to kill and you know, my ADD can't like, I must have something to do. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, Pac-Man battle Royale. Yeah. Whatever it is, you know, I don't care. That's fun. But, yeah. These are this and other crazy things are the types of things that that go through my mind that and like, you know what I'm going to eat, you know, that's another one. I'm always like focused on like, you know, <laughs> I was going to go on an all almond diet and then I thought that's just nuts. 
<laughs> you know, uh, aren't almonds not nuts? Uh-oh. Don't try to take away from my joke, sir. Uh, let's see here. I just heard this the other day. Are you say Bites are common label. Nope. Uh, almonds are not true nuts um, because they're not a type of dried fruit, but they're rather seeds enclosed in a hard fruit covering. They're fruit. Well, they're seeds. They're so, classified as droops. <laughs> would that would that make uh, peanuts also the same because they have a hard covering? Uh, let's see. Mm. Mm. The fruits of cashew, almond, and pistachio plants are not true nuts, but are rather yeah. classified as droops. And peanuts are legumes. So they are nuts. Peanuts are edible seeds. So similar, but they grow in pods, so they're legumes. Well, what about pecans? Aren't pecans similar to almonds? Oh, wait. Was that the one you just named off, Alan? Uh, the cashew, almond, and pistachio plants. Oh. Pecans are nuts. Wow. Okay. Well, this, this and uh, more things. This, this is what you can learn from listening to Coding Blocks. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, if you haven't already subscribed, you know, there's there's some helpful links there. Maybe like a friend is like giving you a link or something like you should listen to what this guy crazy said about almonds. That's just insane. How did he not know that? That's but, nuts. You know, yeah, that's <laughs> nuts. Or it's not. Apparently, <laughs> it's not we're learning. <laughs> so, yeah. But let's get let's get back into uh, uh, Google and uh, service oriented cluster turnup because that's where this ended up going was. Oh, sorry. But yeah, this is kind of where we like uh, already uh, alluded to before, though, is that because of their use of shell scripts and everything and and what they were doing with SSH and and how they were maybe like abusing it (laughs) and what you can get away with. Right. they they ended up deciding that as a as a part of this security threat, they needed to move to a different architecture, and that architecture ended up becoming a service oriented architecture where there they could have like one kind of control server that could uh, run those tasks from there in a RPC kind of fashion. Yep, and this is where this chapter started um, like clicking to me. Where there were things that we talked about and stuff that was like, it was good, but then I started to kind of to understand. And what I mean by that is that we're talking about the product team writing a sort a service, you know, like a series of services, whatever, SOA, service uh, oriented, whatever the A stands for. Architecture. Uh, architecture that would be in charge of creating these other services and making sure they were stood up right and cycling them, doing failovers, doing whatever they need to do for the services. So keep that in mind, and we say that um, well, I'm going to describe this flow real quick, and then I'll tie up the point here. So the flow went from operators triggering manual actions with no automation to operators writing system specific automations to externally maintained generic automation, moving to internally maintained system specific automation, and finally ending up at autonomous systems that need no human intervention. Now the reason I want to call that and why I blasted that out is because of the word operator. Now, if you think about, or if you're familiar with Kubernetes, there's this concept of an operator, which conceptually kind of acts almost like a person on your team that's in charge of kind of keeping these things, or keeping your services and pods and all of your various Kubernetes res- resources in shape. And so when you need a change to your services, you ask the operator to do it by changing the, you know, the definition of the, the operator's resources. 
And so when I was kind of reading about this stuff, I was like, oh, this is this is where operators came from. This is where the, the people who write the service, like a Postgres or something, or, you know, obviously in this chapter, it's going to be internal Google tools. But they're responsible for publishing this API that uh, is in charge of kind of running things and making changes and hides all the various details of that stuff. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what a Kubernetes operator is, essentially. And as, you know, we're kind of talking in this chapter, like we're kind of talking about the evolution of Borg going from, you know, step one is just kind of people like shelling into individual machines until you get to the other opposite end of things where you're talking about kind of like a Kubernetes type Borg type thing. We've got this like massive kind of global computer that's doing all these things and self-healing and keeping things running. And so I can see how this is like suddenly like both a big uh, important piece of the automation story, but also an important uh, theoretical concept in that allows Kubernetes to be what it is. I mean, if you, if we hadn't called this out before, but just to back up for a moment, cause this was what we had, this flow that you just described was previously called out in the, um, the previous episode where, you know, we, and we had referred to it as the maturity model uh, in the show notes, but they had this like hierarchy class of automation. And so the, the no, you know, just give some examples right here. No automation was again where the database master has failed over manually between locations. The second one, externally maintained system specific automation, is where you might have a failover script in your home directory, for example. And then there's the externally maintained generic automation where now you have added that, um, you know, support for that database uh, as you've added that script to some repository where everybody can use. And that script has support for a generic failover where like I could specify the database name and host name and, you know, as like parameters maybe. And then the fourth one, the internally maintained system specific automation was the example where the database itself, in this case, we're talking about MySQL uh, in their example here, the database itself might ship with a failover script. And then the fifth example was, uh, that we refer to here as autonomous systems that need no human. We had previously called that out as like systems that don't need any automation. And that was because the database itself noticed the problem and automatically filled over without human intervention. Yep. And think about prod tests. We just talked about prod tests and talked about, you know, it was a series of unit tests and they could fail and they could try to fix themselves. We said, ultimately that was kind of not so great because it was kind of flaky and there was weird stuff going on. And, uh, we moved to a centralized system now where we had these kind of uh, admin servers that were responsible for kind of making sure things were right. And it's a big conceptual change to go from like agent-based things that are fixing themselves to these operators, which can fix uh, other computers, but also orchestrate changes across computers. So it may not just be computers. Now it's not just these virtual machines or whatever they are, containers, but now it's uh requisitioning uh, or um, I forget the word I'm looking for, but basically standing up load balancers and setting up uh, cloud DNS or, you know, whatever, like actually doing provisioning. To, to, yeah. Provisioning multiple servers. So it's not so much about the individual computers in my cluster as it is uh, kind of everything. It's like these operators provide an interface to be used and can use other interfaces to do other things and affect the, the system in other ways that are outside just its uh, individual components. Hey, I don't know if we called it out. So we talked about these admin servers and things and how it replaced shell, but the whole, the, I, did we mention that it was like basically RPC calls, right? Like just remote procedure calls to where it, it's like your software that you write. If, if you're used to, 
you know, writing any kind of middleware that communicates with other middleware. Essentially, it was just making um, each each group that was in charge of their service would set up a remote procedure call that could be called because they knew when their service should be in a good state and the kinds of things that needed to do. So each team would sort of manage their own service. And then these admin servers would call those RPC um, methods whenever it knew that it needed to do the next thing. So by getting away from the shell scripts, now you got rid of the root access. Plus now you've also got something that is called in a standard way and has an audit trail. They can put ACLs around it. Um, what is that? Uh, something control A- list. access control access. list access control list. So basically they could make sure that only users or systems that have the right privileges could call these things. So that was the SOA thing that, that Jay Z and outlaw mentioned a minute ago. And that's, they basically turned it away from shell scripts into regular software is, is more or less what they ended up doing. Right. Do you ever think that like, so, so I guess it's long been, you know, kind of, I don't know, rumored or at least suggested that like, if you hear something that Google is doing that, or Google did, you know, like if you're reading about it in a book, then that is something that they've already moved away from. And that was something they were doing like 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. Like you guys have heard that kind of thing too. So like, as it relates to this SRA thing that like, they probably have something greater that they're doing now. And like, you know, this was a practice that they did 10 years ago and they're sharing it to the world. You know, they might have evolved onto something much better. Now, if you, if you take that at face value and think like, okay, that's how Google operates, right? Like they don't, they don't give the, the secret sauce away until they're, they no longer need it and they found something better. Do you think like how much, how amazing must it be then that they're using something better than Kubernetes now? If they are like internally, like that's kind of mind boggling, right? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I'm pretty much in love with Kubernetes at this point. Yeah, right? Yeah, same. But you know, I think it's interesting. I think what you're talking about is like the software they use. But I think like th- this book, a lot of it is the patterns of how they ended up getting to a point to where things didn't suck. Kind of, right? I mean, that's that's sort of like... This is why we don't put Alan in charge of the episode titles. Things that don't <laughs> suck. Right? Episode 189. I think it's real, um, but, but I think that's the notion and, and the steps, the pains they went through to get to a point to where things actually worked the way they wanted them to, right? Like they're little specialized teams. They admitted that failed. Like it just, it didn't work well as time went on. And so, so yeah, definitely they're, they're probably using something like, you know, that's gone past Kubernetes or something now, but at least, at least getting to the point to where they felt like they were being successful and not, and not chasing their tails on issues. It seems like they've been open and honest about that kind of stuff. You know, the one thing though, that I thought was like kind of going back to part, this part of the chapter from the previous episode that we had talked about where the, I think it was a previous episode where, where they were talking about like they would, uh, you know, build their own system so that they could like write APIs around it and anything like that. And I was thinking about it from a maturity kind of point of view from the company, right? Like, you know that that takes a pr- rather large company with with a where like everyone in the company has the same kind of um drive but also s- similar skill sets across the company or, or, you know across that large group of individuals right and and what, by that what i mean is it's not like uh you know a large company where some portion of the crew might be like 
office workers managing money and and then you have like line workers that are you know and so there's like a, a large you know skills gap there between those people because you know if you think about like at google if you just assume that like um you know, a, a large, it's a software company. So a large portion of the company you would assume is like, or the majority of the company is software developers. The, the, to have the time and focus to like, say like, Oh, I don't like this tool that's freely available because while it does work and solve the job, like I can't like write an API around it easily. So I'm going to write my own is, is like that. That's a, that's definitely a maturity level kind of thing. And like one of the things that super hit home with me this week was that uh, we have some software that we use to maintain uh, schedules for like, you know, who's, who's primary and secondary on calls. Right. And it's, it is, it is the, the software not that good. we're using is not as, you know, we talked about the Grafana on call last time and I, I can't speak to like how easy or not that that is, but what we are using, I'm not going to throw it under the bus by name, but it is also just a train smash of awfulness. Like it is so unnecessarily, uh, the interface is just ridiculously, you know, uh, uh, confusing and whatnot, but then like, you know, not having this API around it, you know, that, that we could interact with made me appreciate Google's point that they made in that. Uh, I think it was this chapter, right? In the early, you know, earlier in the chapter, or maybe it was last one where they were saying like we we would favor just writing our own version of that thing so that we can control it right and then and then now you you're like well that's silly in your on call example you want an api and like yeah because what if like i'm the on call person and i schedule some time off now i have this calendaring system that's completely unrelated to this on call system but one could talk to the other and like you know oh he he scheduled this uh time off well then i need to rearrange the on call calendar to to substitute somebody else in automatically who's next in the in the rotation right so yeah it made me it made you know, it made me totally appreciate their take on like we'll just write it ourselves well i think it's a combination of maturity and just resources right like i mean you could have a killer development team that's mature and can do the stuff but if you I mean, if if you don't have the money or the number of developers to be like, oh yeah, we're just going to write our own scheduling app. Then, That's what I meant by like the, yeah. the number. You know, I was using the example of like a line worker and then the the office worker, like that that skills gap. Because like I assume, and this is you know probably not a fair assumption, but uh, you know because of Google being the type of company they are, I assume that like the largest portion of their workforce is probably like you know eighty five percent software developers, and right. you know in some kind of way whether they're classified as sres or whatever you know um versus you know you might take a company like i don't know ford or 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 you know uh yeah where where it's there's a large group you know like the, the the guys that are designing the cars are probably a small fraction like you know they might be 10 percent of ford or less right whereas the people who are actually like putting together the thing that you designed might make up a larger portion of the company. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. That wasn't a tangent, so I'm not going to do a tangent alert for that one. <laughs> I think that one was related. 
So uh, the, the next section was the one that like, you know, really sealed it. I was like, okay. And I actually went back and reread it, re-listened to the chapter after reading this one. Cause it kind of put everything else in perspective to me. So it's kind of like, uh, I, I like when things begin with the end, like tell me where you're going and then let's go back. So, uh, this, this was my favorite one. And the deal was, uh, and there's some carryover too, but, uh, this is about the kind of the birth of Borg. He said in the, the early days, Google's clusters were racks of machines with specific purposes. And, uh, this is where they talked about having developers that would start, like, you know, like every three months or so. And that's about how long it would take to stand up a cluster. And so like a new employee would come and they'd be like, Hey, tell you what, you're in charge of this turn up. Uh, it'll help you kind of, you know, learn the, the ropes and stuff. And then you'll be able to help, uh, you know, new, uh, new other people when, when they come on. Um, and so, you know, these people would start up, they'd have a bunch of readmes, they'd have scripts, they'd have things checked into repositories or kind of be shared around. Uh, and we're talking about back in the days when like devs would like log into these machines and have things like golden <laughs> binaries. Like this is the, the version that we're installing. It was uh, delivered to us last month. And this is the version that we're going to be installing for the next three months until the next version rolls out, whatever, like that kind of thing. So this is like super early days. But as Google grew, the number of clusters and machines started getting out of hand so that the scripts had to get better just kind of by the definition, you know, they couldn't like hire somebody new every time they need a new cluster. Uh, and to run that stuff, it just doesn't really scale very well. So, uh, these things had to get better. And this is all the stuff we've already kind of talked about. Um, <laughs> I also mentioned like shelling in machines to look at logs and doing regex parses parsing. That's not something you could do when you have a million computers, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And that's where Google's heading, you know, the Google we know now, like who knows how many actual servers they operate, right? But I'm pretty sure they have more uh, servers than employees for sure. Well, I think this was the chapter two where they originally talked about like it was in a single building or something like that. Was that where they were talking about like the clusters were deployed in a single building and then like as it grew in scale to where it was where, you know, data centers were around the world or whatever, like that's when it became more of an issue. They did because they had even mentioned that originally they named their machines a particular way. And then they were like, Oh, wait a second. Yeah. We you have could assume, too many. Now we need patterns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could like, assume like data center and, and, uh, and domain names and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's where they were like, yeah, things just got out of control, right? Like they got too big. And then this is where Jay Z was going with all this. Yeah. I remember back in the day going to meetups, like you'd be able to like meet someone new and like, Oh, you're what, what, blah, blah. Um, what's your naming convention for your servers? You do Greek gods or Roman gods. Oh, I, I was going to say like, like distinction. remember, I remember one of them being like, uh, the seven dwarfs from yeah. snow white. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Or transformers. Like I remember yeah. all sorts of like creative names. Like people would name servers and they were like pets. Right. And that's very different from kind of how we talk about and think about these things. But this is the world they were coming from. And, and this is the, this is like in particular is the, the point in the notes that you can't see that, uh, kind of flipped the switch in my brain where they said automation eventually evolved to storing the state of machines in a proper database with sophisticated monitoring tools. And this is something where I was like, duh, why, like, why have I not thought about this problem? And like, until then, like, I, I've always thought about things like even cloud resources and stuff is like things in an environment that I would go out and I would have my shell script go check. And go look for these things and then apply the actions or whatever I would shell into these machines. I've got the, you know, bookmarks in my <laughs> browser. But well, things got so big that Google started storing this information in a database. And to me, like, that seems so, kind of like a, such an obvious evolution that I just never got to that step. I never thought about having a database for our servers. And you can go in and see, uh, you know, what the version of the operating system is. What's the status? What's the last time we heard of it? What's its, uh, you know... 
uh, how long has it been running? What's the uptime? What racks it in? What's location like that? That's all information that I just, you know, like my kind of small time thinking, like you went out and got when you needed. Uh, but th- when you flip the switch and say, no, like let's keep this stuff in the database and we'll keep that database up to date with various agents or different polling or whatever. But uh, once you start getting data into a database, then my programmer brain's like, oh, I know what to do with data, right? Like I'm a programmer. I know what to do with software and getting stuff out of databases. And then I know how to make things go affect the real world based on changes in a database. So you could say like, you know, have a little web app where I can go and say, uh, restart these 10 servers. So I do a couple little check boxes, I hit apply, right? And then I know I've got some process out there that's going to be watching this database and say, oh, okay, I need to go restart these servers. Once you've turned your uh, servers, your infrastructure, and all this stuff into data, suddenly you've turned this from like a hardware operations problem into a software problem. And like programmers are good with that stuff. So I can imagine like this was a big leap in like Google's kind of productivity and scalability. Well, I mean, also uh, security too. Like think about it going back to that Heartbleed example, right? Like if you have thousands and upon thousands of servers, and you don't have all this data centralized, and then an issue like Heartbleed comes out, and you're like, okay, how many servers are impacted by this vulnerability? How many have I already fixed, and how many I have left? Right, like you're gonna go run a script that's gonna SSH run some SSH command on every one of those thousands of servers. No, that'd take forever, right? Versus right. if you had it all centralized, then you can just you know it's a simple you know SQL query, right? So to put what Jay-Z just said into the words that they had in the chapter that was that also was kind of like a turning point in my brain um, about how Google handled this stuff is like he just said they turned it into data. They stopped looking at hardware as hardware and they looked at it as just resources. Right. And and, and basically what Jay-Z was saying is they cataloged those resources. Right. And so once you get to that point, there's so much that you can do with it. And, and they started doing more with it. You imagine it totally separates the teams. So you're like, okay, hey, um, we need some hardware HVAC power people, and we'll tell you how many uh, buildings to go build and plug this stuff in. And when you're done, you know, pl- like plug it all in. Like maybe you'll have some sort of process that will kind of uh, investigate that stuff and do it into a database. And then you're done. You move on to the next building. And then the software kind of takes over and can say, like, hey, these machines are for this, for that. You get into like software defined networking and uh, all sorts of cool stuff that is kind of evolved in like the last you know, 20 years or so uh, to, for dealing with that stuff. But like all of that comes from having a, like a centralized database with all your resources in it, which I, it's just so dumb that I never thought about like having, having that in any places that I've worked. I'm talking, you know, like I'm not talking about nowadays where like we've got like a, a lot of times you'll have like a cloud provider. And if you want to know all your VMs, like you go to the VM screen and, and look at them there. Um, you know, so obviously there's some sort of database. They're not going out and looking for all your stuff at that point. So like, and you know, I, obviously I knew that was there, but I'm, I'm talking about like back in like nineties and aughts and whatever, where I'd be working in places. I never thought to have like my machines in a database. Like I, I would have a list of them sometimes if I needed to do, um, there were various tools for like kind of showing to multiple computers at a time and doing things. And I would just have a script that had like the list of all the servers. And if somebody added a new server, you'd have to update your list and, it's just so dumb. I was dealing with databases and doing all this stuff. I never thought to put it in there. It's like physician heal myself. <laughs> and that's why I'm not Google. If I if I just made that one little leap, you don't the world. You'd be now. zacking things right now. That's of right. <laughs> you'd be zacking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
like, let me uh, let me zack that for you. Let me zack into that machine. Uh, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, Would yeah. that make us zackers? Then I guess. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah. way better than Google, right? I guess um, we'll have to change rename the you know coding zacks. That's right. There we go. <laughs> so so what he just said, right, is is exactly what led into the things that they've been able to do over time, which was now they know of all the resources on it in their entire infrastructure. Right. So they could start doing other things and allocate those resources differently. Right. So we all remember the days where you had one computer and it did one thing, right. It had a database on it or it had your application on it. And they started thinking about, Hey, well we can, kind of sort of separate out these resources, right? So we have CPU resources, we have RAM resources, we have all this stuff. And then they made it to where they could start running different types of tasks on the same machines because it was just a pool of resources, right? And that's, I think that's what they kind of named this particular section was the birth of the warehouse scale computer, right? So you don't think of it as as 5,000 machines in this in this data warehouse. You think of it as, these are the compute resources we have available. And that's how they started treating it. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I, I mentioned that kind of flip there too. Like uh, there was a part where they mentioned having like file descriptors or computer descriptors on computers. So you could like shell into a machine and like, look at it's like info dot text and see like what the machines used for and what it's good for. And this flips the script and says, no, the authority, the program of record is actually the database. And if the machines don't match the database, it's the machines that are wrong. Uh, not the other way around. So something needs to go fix those machines or decommission or just wipe them and start all over again. Those, those are the things that are in trouble. So it's just really cool kind of, uh, you know, switch there from those servers being pets to the servers being treated like kind of cattle or being treated like these kind of like um, flexible kind of reusable um, components. You took it to a re- dark place there. Can we, <laughs> that, yeah, pet, no, I, that pet cattle comment did not go unnoticed, sir. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was the, like, I think they've gotten away from that analogy because of that, because it is kind of like a weird, like, ooh. But uh, yeah, we don't say that so much anymore. Y- yikes. But uh, <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot what I was going to say there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you, Dang, you, you ruined it. It, it was going to be brilliant. Yeah. It was so, going to be the next, you know, great uh, Zachification Zach, of the yes, world. Yeah. Yes. So, so what this ended up doing, right, when they started treating all this stuff as resources, now they could scale things without having people do stuff right like it, it was all automated by their software by their controllers and this nowadays you don't even realize it you don't notice it but there's there's tons of machines that go up and down all day and nobody cares nobody knows because it's all being managed behind the scenes right if something dies whatever it gets picked up on another node another machine another cluster whatever it just keeps running I remember what I was going to say now. <laughs> so uh, this really became super important as uh, we were moving more into virtualization. So we stopped even talking about computers at some point and talking about servers. We started talking about like virtual servers, and now we're talking about containers. So you might have like one computer, one node running, you know, who knows, hundreds of pods, like hundreds of containers, um, maybe thousands, I don't know. But um, the, like once you start kind of looking at these things globally, you stop thinking even about the computers. You just think about the resources and the way that in the units that are comfortable to you. And uh, that, you know, again, led into the kind of the birth of Kubernetes. But what's also super important here is that this starts looking a lot like scheduling processes on like a CPU or scheduling resources like memory and uh, disk space and allocation. These are all things that programmers have been doing since programming was invented, you know, allocating space. 
um, scheduling processes. So well, again, it's kind of tying in this analogy over like Borg slash Kubernetes is really kind of like a distributed computer. And once you've kind of managed to shape your problem in such a way that it lines up with that metaphor, then you can start using the techniques of things like Hoban spoke to architecture and um, like all the things that people have been studying now for 50, 60, however, however long you can study, apply these things to your kind of your hardware, which I think, is a, it was a novel idea at the time. I think we've established that all the good ideas came out in the seventies and we're only just now beginning to understand and yeah. implement them. Right. Yeah, but, so it took it took us fifty years to be able to yeah shape our problem into something that fit with those. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to add on to what you were saying there about like the, the you know how you would rethink about these problems. Like, I think that once you do get into this you know distributed computing kind of like Borg Kubernetes model, that you no longer think of it in terms of the hardware at all. Like, who cares about the memory, RAM, CPU, you know, disk, and stuff like that? And instead, you're just like, is the service up and available or not? And if it's not, just restart it. Like it's so, you know, or, or let it scale itself, you know, uh, if it's not, uh, you know, sir, if it's falling behind due to the latencies or whatnot. Yep. You think about like auto scaling, like all this stuff can't work. Like the rise of cloud computing, like none of that can happen if the systems weren't self-healing and you can't have like a team of working people working on like swapping out hard drives or swapping out computers or putting new racks in and stuff like that. Totally separate from what those computers are being used for. If you think about like Google, Amazon, you know, AWS, Azure for Microsoft, like that whole thing is basically them selling you resources mm-hmm. and it's totally divorced from the idea of the computer. So it's kind of like what we're reading about here in a way. It's like the birth of cloud computing. But it's almost a th- like here. Here's another analogy to, a way to think about it. Like right now in, you know, 2022, it's a big deal to think about like cloud computing and Kubernetes and stuff like that. Right. But we're talking about this as like, it's almost more infrastructure as a service kind of stuff that we're talking about, right? Like you're, you're providing the, you know, so I'm paying you to provide somebody to manage that there is a computer that can host all of these pods and all of these containers. And if there's a drive, you know, a disc drive that needs to be, uh, swapped out, like you're going to replace that disc or, you know, if a new ethernet cable needs to be ran or whatever, like you're going to, you're going to do all that for me. Right. I mean, what about like in a hundred years, maybe we just treat this as like how we consider the electric company today, right? We don't really think huge. about electricity in the, in the terms of like just how amazing it is that we even have this thing, right? It's just, no, it's just part of that. We take it for granted. Well, you know, it's funny though. I, I think, I think you're onto something with that is right now we use it as infrastructure as a service, right? It very much so like what you were talking about. AWS, GCP, Azure, all of them are pushing towards software as a service, which is using their own infrastructure, right? Like basically you'll just be able to use stuff that you don't have to think about, right? Like, like, um, I mean, I know Azure has its, um, machine learning and, and AI type stuff out there that you can just, you can just use, right? Like you can put it in your own software at some point. It won't even be, hey, you can use this software. It'll be like, hey, just use the service and, and you're done, right? Um, and I think a lot of them are pushing that way so that you're not thinking about the RAM. You're not thinking about the CPUs. You're not thinking about any of that. You just use the thing and you're done. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the push for everything right now. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking like, you know, a- after our lifetime, well, after our lifetimes, like this won't even be something like it'll be, it'll just be such a building block that you'll just assume is there. You'll completely take for granted. You won't, you know, yeah. Like it, the, the problems will be so much more grand. 
yeah. at that point. So the next session section is actually kind of interesting here. So they say reliability is the fundamental feature. And when they say the fundamental feature, they're talking about of automation, right? Um, so this gets into something that's a little bit tricky. They said the internal operations that automation relies on, they need to be exposed to the people as well. And, and the reason they say this is because as these systems got more automated and more complicated, the ability for just regular people to reason about what was going on, it starts deteriorating over time because think about it, right? Like if your systems run basically hands-free for a month solid and then something goes wrong, you haven't had to think about that thing for a month. So now if something right. goes wrong, where do you go? Where do you start? Like, where do you get into there and figure out what's going on? So that's basically said that that is one of the biggest issues that you run into is if you've automated these things, but you don't expose what that automation is doing and what the internal states of the systems are, then people are going to have a really hard time getting in there when something does fail. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that last episode. Like if your phone breaks, you don't have the tool. Like you literally cannot go in and fix it. You can replace components sometimes. Sometimes you just have to replace the whole phone because you're so far uh, divorced from like the actual underpinnings that even if you knew what to do, you couldn't do it. Well, that's not true anymore. Because of the uh, right to repair laws? Yeah. Are you not, have you not seen this where like now Apple will ship you a uh, set of tools and instructions on how to do the repair yourself? Oh no. Have you never, you really, you really haven't. Okay. I'm going to send you this link. That's got to be right to repair laws kind of coming into effect. But I mean, like if your battery in your laptop dies, you're not going to crack that thing open, get a screwdriver and like fix the lithium cells. Right. Like you can't, like you, and even like your chip goes bad because some, some transistors got kind of burned or something like, and not, not transistors, but whatever they are. Um, you can't go in there and like straighten that out with a toothpick, you know, I'll have a link. I'll have a link to it in the, in the show notes for this episode, but yeah, there was a um, back in April of this year. Uh, Apple's self repair service is now available, where they will send you genuine Apple parts and tools <laughs> to do whatever the repair is. And, I, and I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, it included the instructions on how to do it. So That's no, pretty awesome. No, you're not going to like open up the cells on a battery because I mean, even if it was like a you know double A battery, you wouldn't do that. But uh, in in like the tools that they send you, it's basically like a fifty dollar rental. Uh, of the of the toolkit so you know hmm. but yeah it's pretty neat that's interesting so one of the other things that they say here is when things get automated they they called it there's a difference when something is non-autonomous basically there are manual actions that were automated that you assume could still be done manually but that's not necessarily the case right so um whatever your automation is doing might've been based off what you did manually previously, but sometimes that changes and you don't have access to the same underlying things in a manual process that the automated stuff does. So that's where they say, (coughs) excuse me, that, you know, there, there can be problems over time as you automate things. If you don't make sure there are ways for people to interact with those same systems. Um, it's kind of like, like your, your, your processes make assumptions that, you know, you doing it manually, you're not aware of. Right. right? Or so maybe you don't, you don't even have, have the to. rights. You may not even have the rights anymore to do some of the stuff manually, right? Like they could have stripped all that away. Um, now they do go on to say, right? Like we've talked about all this stuff and, and outlaw even hit on it with Google has the resources, the maturity to do a bunch of stuff. And so is this even 
does this even matter for your company or for your business or your software that you're writing or whatever? And the answer to that is still yes, right? Because the main benefit you get out of automation is reliability. Um, that's consistency, right? Like if you have something automated, if you have a person go do the same thing on 20 different servers, they might mess up on one of them. Why? Because maybe somebody came by and said something to them in the middle of while they were doing their 15th, right? Who knows? But when you automate that stuff, you now take that, that accidental thing out of play. And now you've, you've set up these systematic processes to, to go do these things. And you make it to where like anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. It's faster and it's reliable. So, so what they said is don't focus necessarily on, I would like to call it consistency though, more than reliability. It could still be, it could still, the automated version could still produce a bad result, but then you're like, Oh, I can find that bad result, fix it. And now, you know, but it's just consistency in in whatever the process is going to be. Yep. One thing they called out is a lot of people want to look at the return on investment when they're doing something like this. Like, okay, well, it's going to take me uh, one person week to do this, right? It's And it's going to cost me X amount. Am I going to get that much return from doing this? And they called out that that's not necessarily the best way to look at this, right? Because that consistency you get from it pays off over time in different ways, right? Like you may not be getting a monetary return on exactly what you did, but what you are doing is setting yourself up for better successes over a longer period of time. And then how do you, how do you put a dollar uh, amount on centralizing logic? Right. It's hard. Yeah. It, It can be almost impossible to, to put a dollar amount on that, but you can actually see real benefits of it over time. I mean, if I gave you, if I gave you some source code and said, Hey, I need you to compile and sign it to deliver a, you know, an executable out to the real world. Right. And the three of us were each tasked with doing that manually we might come up with three different things, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Versus right. if you like, cons- if you consolidated that logic into one centralized place, then it's, it's consistent and reproducible. And, Oh, now I've decided to change the keys or whatever that are required for it. Like, you know, you can, you can, you only have the one place to do it. And I don't have to like go to each of us and say like, Hey, here's the new signing certificate. Right. Yep. You mentioned like if you're an ops person, you're totally separated from the people who write the products. And all three of us wrote a different way of starting up our services and managing it. It's like, okay, let me open up three. We, uh, Alan's is lowercase setup and the flags are this, that, and the other outlaws. Uh, you have to run, uh, some sort of pre-initialization script. that's going to go do everything for you, but you got to check back in an hour to make sure it worked. And Joe's just doesn't work at all. <laughs> you know, it's like, he's just got a couple paragraphs written. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, it's just, it's not scalable. You need these things to be consistent. And the way you do that is by building a centralized platform. Yep. Yeah. And they also say to kind of wrap up this section was think about automation in your design phase. And the reason is, is because it's a lot harder to retrofit that stuff after the fact. Um, I, it, we've talked about that with things like security in the past too, right? Like there are certain things that you want to try and do up front because they're important and they can actually save you a lot over time. And then there's one last bit here that was interesting. They, they kind of threw this in earlier, but it didn't make sense where they had put it because it was going to sort of take you out of the flow of one of the other stories. So what they said is you also have to be careful about automating failure at scale. <laughs> And this one was kind of funny. 
because it, the short of it is they had a thing called disc erase, I think is what it was called. Um, and more or less what this thing was supposed to do was if they pointed it at the machine, it would kind of securely wipe a drive, right? Like get rid of everything on it. Well, they had screwed up. It had failed at some point and then they were trying to figure out what was going on. And so they put it into an area to where they're going to kick it off manually and just, you know, see, Hey, what, what happened? Where was the failure thing? Well, the problem is, um, there was a, an assumption. I, I won't call it a bug. There was an assumption in, in the code that said, Hey, if I don't have a list of machines to wipe, <laughs> and so basically you give me an empty list that I'm going to assume that means you want to wipe everything. So they turned this thing on and it went and found all the machines that were on a particular CDN and wiped all the drives on them. Now they said it didn't end up killing them because fortunately they had enough, you know, capacity planning set up to where the main machines that were serving whatever that data was could handle the load, but they nuked every single CDN machine in that particular area with this disk erase thing when they didn't know about this. Hey, if I don't have anything, wipe it all. And, and so you got to be careful, right? Like, uh, yeah, it, it reminded me of uh, examples in our day job where we've like <clears throat> tried to, de- to define like, okay, how do I want to, do I want to give a different meaning to null versus an empty list versus a list of values? Like those right. are three possibilities. Do they mean different things? Does the null and the empty list mean the same thing or different things? And it's dangerous, right? Yeah. Like, especially when you do something like this built around it. And, and one of the interesting things that they said that came out of this is they built in more sanity checks so that if they ever did go to run this thing, they could make sure that something nasty wasn't going to happen. But they also built in rate limiting, right? Because <laughs> this thing went crazy and just wiped every machine efficiently, quickly. I, I'm still, I'm still kind of baffled about the idea of just writing some automation to go and erase disks. Like that part already okay. is like a scary premise to start with, and you're like, yeah, okay, fine, sure, let's just do it. Let's run it. Have at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. That, that's the Leroy Jenkins approach. Let's just do it. <laughs> So, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I guess uh, enabling failure at scale is pretty scary. Yeah. So, it's pretty high. Yeah. So, uh, we'll, like, we'll have plenty of resources we like, uh, links to resources we like, including uh, some of the stories that I've mentioned in here, uh, you know, in this episode. And with that, uh, well, first, let me ask you this, or let me tell you this, let me, or ask you this question. What did the Zen Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Make me one with everything. Nice. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. And I stole first spot here. And so I'm going to have to dip out early in a second. <laughs> but uh, have you guys heard of kubectl debug? No, I have not. Okay. It's kubectl space debug. There used to be a tool called kubectl dash debug in older versions, but uh, I, I, don't, I couldn't find the exact version that uh, the debug command came out. But you can actually use it for several different things. Uh, and some of those things are really cool, like uh, adding an ephemeral container to your pods. So have you ever been working in a Kubernetes cluster and something's going kind of funky? And so you like 
maybe you create a job or maybe you kind of do a custom deployment and you keep cuddle apply and throw something out there and then you kind of shell in. Like an example here is a lot of times if I've got a service that's going wrong, uh, I would maybe create a deployment and I would change the command to be tail dev null. So this container is going to go up. It's not going to try and run the thing that it usually runs and I can go in there, shell it and kind of look around a little bit. Well, it turns out there's this command that's specifically designed for doing that sort of things. And what's nice about it is that in my example, I created a deployment so I could get a pod. Or you could, there's other ways to do it. That's just one example. But uh, there's these things that are lingering that you've got to go in and delete, which is just kind of messy and manual. And uh, what this lets you do is uh, add and kind of make changes to uh, pods or uh, various other things um, that go away. <laughs> Right when that thing restarts, you're not actually changing the permanent state of your cluster. You're setting up something temporarily, uh, which is really nice. And there's a bunch of different flags, and actually several different things you can do. Uh, one of the things the the uh, couple if you can kind of tweak the flags in order to do is uh, actually create a copy of a running pod that's ephemeral. So that once so that pod shuts down, it's no lingering resources. I don't know if you ever seen issues where you have like you set up like a deployment like I imagine I, I, I gave an example of and you delete the p- deployment the pod goes away and you think you're done but you may not realize that the replica set didn't get deleted and so you've got these resources that are just kind of hanging out there and it's just it's not tidy and uh, kubectl uh, debug lets you do a lot of those different kinds of things um, which is really cool and they actually have examples in the docs and we'll have a link here for uh, handling situations like if you've ever had a pod that just immediately failed it crashed they're like, okay, well, here's how you can deal with that situation with kubectl debug. And you run this command. It doesn't change the permanent state of your cluster. But it gives you a way to kind of shell in and, and deploy that stuff. So obviously not kind of things you you don't want people doing in prod, but it's nice for dev environments. That's uh, really cool. And uh, last thing I want to mention is that uh, I found this resource and then I went up a level in the docs. And I was like, oh, they've got a whole section here on debugging. And a lot of it, if you're like, you've been using, using Kubernetes for a while, it doesn't really add a whole lot because it's like, Hey, is your service down? Try describing it, like which is kind of like uh, you know something that you're going to learn very early on. But some of these things actually get pretty big, like the debugging pods section, huge, and had all sorts of information about kubectl debug that I never heard. So huh. I never thought to look here because I thought it was just going to be all basic. But there was some surprisingly good nuggets in there. So it's good Most stuff. Most excellent. Most excellent. All right. So mine is actually pretty simple. And so maybe my first tip should have been. Um, <laughs> When when the tip pops up in in whatever IDE of choice, read through some of them. <laughs> like that's <laughs> there's you don't some, just turn those off forever. I you know I never have, and and I'm usually annoyed when it pops up, and I'm like ah whatever, close. Well, so for whatever reason, the other day I opened up IntelliJ, and and one of the tips came up on the screen. I was like oh, I'm gonna read this, and it was actually really good. So. When you're debugging an application, a lot of times you'll put a breakpoint in somewhere and you'll put a watch in so that you can see what the value of a variable was, right? Like that's pretty common stuff that we all do. Well, there are times that you're like, man, I really don't want it to stop at these breakpoints. I just want to know what the value of that thing was. And if it was, just move on, right? You can do that in IntelliJ. If you were to highlight the section of code that you want it to output the value of, right? So let's say it's like application dot, um, my value, right? You could actually highlight application dot get my value with its open close parentheses or whatever. And then if you shift click in the gutter, 
on on a point over there after that, it will actually write it out to the logs that are happening in the application and it won't stop on the breakpoint. So you can see the values of the things that you care about as the thing's running without actually stopping. And if you see anything nasty, then sure, you can go and put in a breakpoint and stop there. But it's almost more like a sanity check. So I, I'll have a, an image that, that we can put up on the post as well for this. Um, it sounds like yeah. watch values on steroids. It is. Yeah, it's very much that, right? It, so instead of it having to stop your application and look in your watch values, it will just put it in the same output as the rest of your application logging. So um, I thought that was really cool and something I'd never really thought about. So very pretty cool. nifty. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Like uh, those uh, Those tips come up and... My, my OCD won't let me like close, like permanently close it. Cause I'm afraid like I'll miss something, but inevitably like 90% of the time I'm just like, no, not today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah. it seems like every time I actually do take the time to read them, I'm like, Oh yeah. Why, what? why didn't I look at this before? What other goodies have you been, not been letting me know that you've probably been letting me know that right, I dismissed? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll, well, first, let me tell you a little story here before I get into my tip of the week. So uh, here locally, there was a man that was caught uh, stealing in a supermarket while balanced on the shoulders of a couple of vampires. He was charged with shoplifting on two counts. <laughs> so my first, <laughs> my first tip of the week is specifically for Alan. Wait, so, I, I, what? Yeah, you this was to you. This was to yeah, I'm helping you out, helping you out. First, read the read the tips that you know the application comes up with. Also, uh, test your UPS battery regularly. So you know, uh, me personally, I I have like a little you know reminder every uh, you know few months to like just see you know like if I can I still run the computer for like you know. 10 minutes on UPS or does it immediately just die? Um, whatever your method is of it point is, is like you should, you should test those things regularly because those UPS batteries will die uh, just, uh, you know, from sitting there. Hey, the better tip you should have given me was plug yours up, dude. <laughs> you haven't done that yet. No, I told you it's still sitting down there. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. So a little background information here. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this came up. We were supposed to record this episode a few days ago and a bad storm came through and we were all joking at the start about like, well, we're all on UPS, you know, and we all specifically got each other UPSs to make sure that like we wouldn't have this problem with this. But Alan's Alan said, well, mine's sitting there next to my computer on the floor, not plugged in. And we're, we're like, what? And then guess what happened? Storm rolls through, knocks Alan off and, yeah, so now we're recording a few days later. Yes. So this is why this tip is for Alan. So that yeah, UPS I guess real good right there. I guess yeah. I should. You're right. I should have started with tip one. Plug it in. So yeah, I I assume that was already uh, a given though. All right. So uh, here's for another tip of the week though. Uh, you know, we talk. We've talked a lot about you know container type things today. Uh, Borg, Kubernetes, whatever. So let's talk about Docker. So have you ever found? yourself in a situation where you have a you have an image built and you want to get something out of that image but you don't necessarily need or want or care to run that to, to spin up a container to run that thing right um so and you're like well what would possibly be a use case for that let's take our 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 build pipeline for example um i have this uh 
preference, uh, you know, I don't know, affinity. I, I, I strongly want like everything to be Dockerized, including the build chain so that that way, however something is compiled, it is consistent across every developer's machine because versions of code and whatnot are, or versions of, I'm sorry, not code, but versions of uh, the tools can be strongly maintained and enforced, you know, through that Docker file, for example. Right. Uh, but now when you do, if you're using that to, if you're using Docker to build your code, how do you get test results out of the code as an example? So that's an example where you might want to do what I'm about to say. So rather than doing a Docker run to, uh, start that image as a container and copy the file out with a later Docker CP command. Instead, you can just do a Docker create to create the container without actually running it and using those resources. But now that you have it created, you can then do a copy command out of that container. So I'll have the exact, um, you know, examples of like what this flow might look like uh, in the show notes. But the one big call out too that I want to make in this example of the Docker create is that it will be extremely helpful for you. If you name the container a specific name that you know of, right? So that you can use that same container name later in your Docker uh, copy command. And you'll later, you might, you probably want to remove the container that you've created. So you'll need the container name again to remove it. So it's, it's highly advisable to uh, name name it something that you know ahead of time. Okay, so I've got to piggyback on this because I'm actually super excited about this. I didn't know it existed. So what he's talking about, the reason you want to do this is if there is a file in the image that was created itself, you can get that file out, right, without having to run the thing. And why does that matter? If you've ever tried to Docker run something that requires like 80 environment variables or a bunch of map paths or whatever, it's a pain in the butt just to try and get a file out of it. So this, I didn't, I didn't know this existed. So this Docker create allow you to copy the file out of the image without having to get it actually up and running. Cause you'll know if you ever do a Docker run and you don't give it everything it needs, it'll typically die and then you can't do anything with it. And then you're trying to figure out what you need to do to make it run. Or also there might be a default entry point already specified in the, in the, uh, for the, in the Docker file for that particular image. And so if you do Docker run it, it's going to go and run whatever that entry point is. And that entry point might not be something you want done at that given point. Yep. No, this is, this is killer. That's exciting. I had no idea this existed. Two quick examples I wanted to mention is like one is like um, a lot of times you'll run like unit tests and get coverage files out of it. This is a great way to do that in Docker and and then use it and export that coverage file. Also uh, jars. So if you have like a Java build for, you know, .NET build, anything that generates like DLLs or jars, artifacts that you want uh, in another place and you might do your build in Docker and copy that out and load it into like a Maven repository or whatever. Yep. Yeah. That's beautiful. So yeah. Uh, all of this will be in the, the show notes. Uh, if you haven't already, you can find those on the website, uh, www.codingblocks.net. Uh, and like I said earlier, you know, maybe a friend like said, Hey man, you got to see what these guys are talking about, like almonds and pecans. <laughs> this is crazy talk. And so, you know, you know, you're, you were just listening randomly through some link, but you know, Hey, did you know you can subscribe to us? Uh, you go to, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you like to find your podcasts. Uh, I certainly hope we're there. Um, 
And hey, if you find a, a spot where we're not, um, let Alan know. He he'll he'll fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I just got tasked out. That's good. Yeah, there you go. And 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 as I said earlier, uh, we we I can't emphasize how much we really do appreciate the reviews. They they really are uh, meaningful. I think Alan's even commented on us in the past. Like sometimes, like we get like some truly heartfelt ones that. I mean, they can't, you, you, you can't help but be a little bit emotional when you read some of the things of like the way that we have uh, the positive impact that some of the silly things that we've said, um, but yet they've had a positive impact on other people's lives and, and everything. So we, we really do uh, appreciate reading those and, and it means a lot to us. So you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Yep. Hey, and while you're up there at CodyBlocks.net, make sure you do check out our show notes. We have examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. And you can send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel at CodyBlocks.net slash Slack. Yeah, and uh, like I mentioned, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks, where we send you uh, those really good GIFs. Uh, or you can head up to CodingBlocks.net, find all our social studies at the top of the page.